You're listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And we have uh, two musicians very well versed in the world of jazz, but are taking it way beyond. And mostly this episode is about John Modesky. We've both been fans of John Modesky for a long time, right, Seth? Oh my gosh, absolutely. He's fantastic. I have to admit, I had heard whispers of them back in the 90s, but then it was when they got Fish Acknowledgement that I really took note. And I remember them sitting in with Fish at the State Palace Theater, I think, in New Orleans. No, it was oh, oh, sitting in. I thought you were talking about when they opened for uh, Oysterhead. No, they sat in. I remember this was a show. I was I was pretty out there, and and I remember the balcony was moving. One of those. Oh uh, yeah, you're, yeah. When you're uh, tripping or something, that can be real intense. But then I remember the second. Even though I loved the jam that they did with them, I thought Medeski, Martin, and Woods sitting in with Fish went much better than Trey sitting in with them. I'm telling you. Interesting. It did. It did kind of. You did want oh, another song. I remember that, but that never happened. But I, I go back and listen to it. It's a pretty cool jam. If you he go find is it. a mad scientist for real, and everything about Medeski. Oh, well, Modesky Martin Wood. I just always love love going to the shows because you just never know what you're going to get. Is it going to be that deep, you know, belly funk? Is it going to be the groove? Is it going to be the slow jazzy stuff? I mean, and it's it's always an adventure. Just like you never know when what you get or what you're going to get when you go to Osiris. Hey, this is Robert Walter of Robert Walter's 20th Congress. This podcast is part of the Osiris Podcast Network. OsirisPod.com, where all of our podcasts are listed. We have tons of great new stuff coming that you can learn about. They they just released they released they just launched a brand new website. It features all the different podcasts on there. Uh, there's so many different types, all music and culture related. And yeah, just check it out. OsirisPod.com. Pandolfi from the String Dusters is going to have a new uh, podcast, and, and Steve- these are new specials. So it's not just these; these are new. Not just podcasts like us that are reoccurring, but these are special curated podcasts, musician curated podcasts. Like Steve Silberman with David Crosby. That'll be interesting. And I'd like to point out that right now, available right now, is the fourth deep dive into lyrics from uh, Under the Scales. Yeah, Tom Marshall diving into. And his Seth lyrics. knows. I've been telling Seth. Cause, they were telling me. Well, I mean, I love that we. we we have this fish channel where you can hear the fish shows the next day at noon, but I listen to a lot of it, and then there's all this other fish stuff going on. A lot of fish stuff going on. I got on. kind of burnt out on fish really badly. You got fried. Yeah, and I'm just going to fast, as they call it, with a pH for a little bit uh-huh. until the fall tour when I want to hear every show the day after. But when these lyric dives come out, I dive in. I love, I love you put hearing. Put on your suit. Your, your... Put on my wingsuit. Yeah, do you? And I, and I learn lyrical uh, information and fly. I do really love fish, but I too am amazed and overwhelmed with the amount of things coming out about fish. There's podcast after podcast now of them, and there's it's just there's a lot. It's like if you, you know, here's the thing is this, Rob. You can get so easily stuck just listening to fish. Now you can get so easily stuck just listening to fish related things and but lose felt, out on all these other things. I fell into that trap with the Grateful Dead in high school and I vowed I never would do that again. And the closest I've come is with, uh, is with Fish. No, I don't listen that much to Dead anymore, you silly random douche. But, but one thing I never get sick of 
Robert Polay and Polay Clark is getting to talk about Polay Clark because it's a superior financial insight that's delivered right here in our town of Atlanta. Rob actually got a quarter the other day. He stole from my son's pillow from his tooth fairy. No, he my son gets two dollars. Any rate though, Rob took that quarter. Yeah, to this Pole is what I do. Clark. When this when the kid acts up in school, I take money from him. That's his punishment, and we don't even tell him. Right? I just go spend it. Yeah, you do. Although you did buy bubble gum and gave him that used piece of bubble gum, which is gross, Rob. Yeah, anyway, but back it's to sharing, Clark. But it's sharing. PoleClark.com. Don't get screwed this coming April. Get Polayed. It's the way to go, people. And they're particularly well-versed in the entertainment and sports worlds. Check them out. PoleClark.com. So before we throw it over to John Medeski, um, I want to point out. Point first, it out. First of all, he's on that uh, Last Waltz tour dealy thing. Yeah, sounds pretty interesting. A lot of... A lot of big wigs there, huh? Yeah, I would I would be interested in, in checking that out. But um, it, Is there a Christmas jam, or is that th- this year? Um, it hasn't been announced yet, has it? I don't think so, and it's October already. You watch, by the time this airs, it'll probably get announced. Right? Right. 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 But anyways, it's oh the last waltz tour, and that ends with a pretty cool Nashville thing, so look that yeah. up. Um, yeah, at the, at the arena where I'm the Predators play. I'm out of for that, but that's going to be well, I don't think I'm going to go to that. I, I don't know. I'm going to the. Uh, I'm trying to work out going to that Capricorn. I thought you already worked out the Capricorn. I think so, and it's not going to be a jam based thing. It's just going to be for Osiris. Why not? Oh, and speaking of jam based, thank you, jam based, for yes. being the media sponsor or media partner, rather. Excuse me, the media partner for Osiris podcast and for shining a light on so many podcasts. You know, with their articles, people see those, and it really helps spread the word. And as a matter of fact, one thing I've learned about on jam base was that yeah. the foundation of funk. Oh yeah, is doing a New Year's Eve show in New Orleans, and our boy. John Modesky, as well as Eric Krasno, <laughs> are going to be a part of that. So if you're anywhere near New Orleans, New Year's Eve, I, I recommend you go to that. And Seth, Rob, if you're doing fish in New York City, there's all kinds of neat uh, after parties and pre-parties. And one is the first ever collision of John Modesky and Billy Martin with Scott Metzger of J-Rad oh, cool, and really? Nels Klein, who's mentioned in this interview. Um, they're all doing a bunch of stuff, so look that up, too. Find find your uh, fish after parties and check that one out. And John Modeski's got plenty of stuff going on next year. John Modeski's Mad Skillet is the uh, beginning of this conversation. It's his current uh, band, and it is just incredible. So. Lots and lots of fun. I love the fact they've got the sousaphone for the uh, the bottom there. And, boy, that drummer, Terrence, he can fucking play. And those two are both from the Dirty Dozen Brass Band. Yes, it's Kirk Joseph. Am I getting that right, Seth? Well, I don't know. You're the one looking at the laptop right now. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just worried I'm going to say the name wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's Kirk Joseph. seen him so many times, and I was standing you, yeah, in front were, of him at the show, and like, I'll tell you, that's, that sound coming off of the stage is so, so body-filling. You and he had like a little banter going on back and forth. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. You're like... Sousaphone Sousaphone You can hear it on the tape Hopefully we'll get Recordings and play that On the show And Will Bernard the tape On guitar Oh he's phenomenal Musician's musician He's been mentioned By musicians on our show For you careful listeners Go find that Because that's going to be A trivia question someday For you to answer And win tickets or something But not right now But right now Let's go ahead And jump right into The interview with John And let's thank Terminal West Because as we say At the beginning of this interview They made space for us The opening band Was already on There was very limited time And and we wouldn't have been able To do this interview Without the kind Kindness of Terminal West (laughs) 
once again, we've been blessed by Terminal West. We have a little office blessed area. By Terminal West, I like that. Absolutely. Yeah. This is tune title. And we're sitting with a man who's played with a who's who of all kinds of amazing musicians. He's, of course, a founding member of Medeski, Martin, and Wood. He's recently worked a bunch with John Zorn, and his current act is John Medeski's Mad Skillet. Please welcome. Welcome, welcome, John. John Medeski. Good to be here, wherever this, wherever this place is we are. Atlanta. Yeah. No, no, Atlanta. I'm saying this building we're in. I don't know what this is. But this is the place where they booked you. Oh, this is actually <laughs> this their, is their office? office? Yeah. Oh, yes. okay, cool. This is Good. probably the place where they wrote, uh, signed your check. Great. Which is right here. I'm going to put that in my pocket. Yeah. Not much. You're not going to get much from that. So it's a mad skillet. You're cooking with different ingredients, musical ingredients, uh, liberally coming from New York and New Orleans. Is that the thinking behind the name? Well, you know, I think the name, you know, words are a funny thing. And for me, it's like I've sort of dedicated myself and my life mostly to music without words. I mean, I love a good song. I love words, but I really have always, just even as a kid, had this feeling and belief, you know, that music, there's something that music is a language of its own, and it can do something that words cannot do, that music expresses, it's a human language that expresses something that is unique to itself, and that's why we have it, you know, and that it's like, it's like mathematics or music, these are important languages of ours, and speaking languages. So I have always been sort of into instrumental music and you know starting out with classical music and jazz you know and um you know now it's just what I, and also what i've been doing is trying to find ways of you know using the language of music in you know in, in contemporary ways combining different things you know and so for me when i put words to something it's it's not that it's not always easy you know like if you think about it like beethoven and mozart sonata number one sonata number two they didn't have to <laughs> say what it was about it was left open so a lot of times two titles and band names for me are, that's, you know, that's why Medeski, Martin, and Wood, that was pretty simple. We went through all, you know, because at that time, you know, it's hard to, but it, historically put it in perspective in the early, think about the early 90s, there were so many crazy, amazing band names, you know, yeah. Butthole Surfers, I mean, it, it, you know, you just go down the line, there's incredible band names, and a lot of, you know... Bands, you know, mediocre bands with great band names. So we were just, we, not, not, no, not the Butthole Service. Not the Butthole no Service. Way. They were a great band with a great band name. Right. But that was rare. Right, right. <laughs> you know? And so we were, we just said, you know what, we don't, let's just, we're going to go the opposite and just really just, just, just use our names because who does that, you know? In that scene, just real quick as an aside, yeah. wasn't just taking it on the road out of New York going the opposite in a way? I mean, a lot of people make a comfortably live. I mean, Zorn doesn't really travel much. He, he does fine in New York, and other musicians do too. It was, it was kind of bold for you to take it on the road, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, uh, Zorn's a whole other story. He is, a, you know, he's a unique, he's sort of like a universe of himself that he's created. He's created, you know, he, well, he did. He, you know, he toured in Europe. He did a lot of... I mean, he put his music out there, and he's he's so prolific. He's a whole he's a whole other level. You can't really use him as an example. He's a shaman of music. As, you can't use him as a standard example because he's <laughs> no. you know, he's really created something you know beyond what. <laughs> That's like trying to say like yeah, Colonel Bruce human. is uh, you know your average day musician. But would you agree that there are musicians, avant garde yeah. musicians well, that I, do? Well, but I want to talk because what you said is actually a good point because when we did what we did. Everybody, like all the people we knew, and well, whose names I won't even mention, musicians, you know, some of them who are pretty well known now, you know, all of them, their whole paradigm, and the paradigm coming out of the 80s was get a record deal and, you know, milk that, and then you can have a career. And we were really, 
I don't know what it was. Just something inside us was just like that's you know. But that was the great chase. I mean, that it really has changed, it. though. I mean, it's yeah. not just because of the way that the industry's changed in terms of ticket sales and merchandise is now the money maker and all that. But I mean, with with every the bands were chasing these record deals. There was this this thing of uh, you get all this money, maybe you pay it back, maybe you don't. Well, you definitely don't. You know, I mean, that was the thing, and everybody's looking how to you know, and you get tour support and you get this whole thing. And to me, it was just very faux and hollow you know and it's like and so what people were doing in new york at the time was playing with a lot of bands hoping something would land and so what we did was we went instead we just went out you know we got in the van first and then we bought a camper when we really committed we bought a camper and just stayed on the road for two or three years and just traveled around and we started coming down here down south we would drive you know our thing was like get the hell past dc stay out of the north you know where it's where it's a drag to drive around and play and we're like the loadings suck and the people who don't give a shit and we came down south yeah one of the few new york were dancing in florida <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do you think about the, you think about the nineties? I mean, this is also this is pre. There was no jam band scene. Uh, what I'm talking about, there was nothing. Nobody was doing that. I mean, the, you know, I guess Fish was. But we didn't we didn't know who they were back then. We didn't know nothing about any of that. We were New York downtown New York guys, and we just were like, I think let's go out there and play. And if we can get you know fifty people to show up at these different places mm-hmm. everywhere in the country, we can be playing like you know every night this music instead of doing 20 different gigs in a month in new york and not you know we wanted to develop this music and develop our chemistry so we went on the road and it was not what people were doing and people were like oh you're crazy you're stupid you don't know what you're doing and then you know it kind of worked for us but you've always needed change you've always needed to challenge yourself and reinvent yourself never rest in your laurels never you know shortcut to fame crap at all so i, I know under- i'm looking for the shortcut now though man <laughs> well you got the nominee today with the grammy right oh, yeah, congratulations uh, your label got a nomination what label was it uh let's I'll pull it up here you keep talking yeah let, let me ask you this question first though i, don't I even know what you're talking about yeah, this is good news <laughs> i think we're gonna break good news i know how you can in these jam sessions in new orleans how you can get a sense of who's a great improviser and who isn't and that's how you met Terrence and Kirk and decided to play with them. How do you know that once you get in a setting apart from that, that they're going to be creative in the way that you're looking, that you've always looked for in your career? You know what? You don't. And that's actually the thing. And that's, this is interesting. That's one thing about, about that scene, the late night scene in New Orleans is, <clears throat> and what's, what's great about it and what I love about it, what we all love about it, is all these combinations of people come together that don't happen any other time. Right, right, you know? right. And in the case of this band, if that's what you're asking about, I worked with Terrence and Kirk in 1999 producing a Dirty Dozen record. That's when I heard them. And that's when I said in my mind, God, I really want to do something with them. I had like saying, but my idea, which maybe we'll still do with this band that I haven't even told these guys was, (laughs) I was like, I want to do some kind of Mahalia Jackson tribute record with Kirk and Terrence, like something like Oregon and like Mahalia Jackson. And um, what happened was I did a record with Will, Blue Plate Special, 10, 11 years ago, Palmetto Records. And... We started playing Jazz Fest after that. The first year, it was Blue Plate Special, the whole band. You know, the next year, <laughs> whoever, somebody couldn't make it, so there was a sub. And Will kept calling, you know, 10 years later, he's still calling a Blue Plate Special. It's not even remotely the same band. <laughs> it's some of the same tunes. So he got um, Kirk on one of the gigs. And you know, we, this is our thing. Because like, Will was like, you know, was like the one time a year he and I would play together was we'd go right. to Jazz Fest, we'd have this gig, you know. And um, I think the first gig we did was actually Stanton Moore Trio. I subbed for Robert Walter in Stanton Moore Trio. And I, that was the first time I played with Will. And I was like, oh, this guy's great, you know. So anyway, we did Blue Play Special, started doing these gigs every Jazz Fest. And they were always fun. 
but he got Kirk, and then the bell went off in my head. I was like, oh, man. I've always wanted to do the same with Kirk and Terrence. And let me ask you And, and the next something. year, I'm like, get, let's get Terrence next year. Mm-hmm. And so we got him. And there was, and just to answer your question really quickly, is it like, you don't know, but the chemistry, that's the thing. It was so undeniable. And then we did it again the following year, and it was just like, finally, just like, we got to record this. You know, you don't always, it's not always, we got to record this, yeah, yeah. you know, and for me. But I heard this band for me, I was like, okay, I feel like we got to record this because I feel like when we make a record, we can take this to another level. And I think we did. I think the record, you know, it's one of those things where, like, you know, you do the music, you have the band, you play, and then you make a record, and that actually can either, you know, be do something that the band will never sound as good as, or it can open a door to a whole new world for a band, which is what it did for Mineski Martin Wood. Every time we made a record, it would like, we'd get in there, the struggle, write, create, improvise, come over the record, and then suddenly we'd have a whole year or two's worth of new adventure. And with this band, it was kind of the same thing. We came up with some new stuff. We did some of you know, things we've been doing for years. Yeah, it was great. I mean, really, the chemistry was great, and that's why we're trying to do it. Mm-hmm. But you produced the Dirty Dozen at a point when they were fleshing out their sound and trying some new things, right? Did, was the way you watch, or it's was that... sobriety. Oh, no, no, it wasn't. Never mind. Oh. I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that it happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, give them the good news, Seth. All right, so, I mean, what, maybe, good maybe, news? This, maybe it's good news, or maybe uh, I got misinformation. But uh, Mellotron... Variations oh. album from Space Flight yeah. Records yeah, yeah. was nominated for a Grammy. Wow. What Grammy? Today. Ah, we don't <laughs> know the category. <laughs> we know which one, what category? Uh, let's see. Uh, Instrumental? Weird world music? Weird uh, music? It's opening up. It's opening up. This is a little slow. Yeah, you know? that's right. Wow, that's cool. That's crazy. Hard to believe. Amazing. So you, you still work with John Zorn, huh? Best Contemporary oh, yeah. Instrumental Album. Beautiful. Wow, fantastic. So if you're a voting member, please consider. Yes, yeah, and vote for that. Why not? We have a lot of people who vote for the Grammys who listen to our show regularly, so please oh, yeah, I'm sure. get on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Zorn? Yeah, just real quick. I, I'm, I'm so mystified by him. Oh, he's, I mean, he's... He's you celebrating he, Rosh Hashanah right now. I've been working with Zorn for a long time. Yes. You know, we played together when I first moved to New York, and started to do some, you know, started to do a little stuff with him, and then Medeski Martin Wood kind of took off, and that was it. And I wasn't around the city; I couldn't do a lot, and I didn't do much with him for, you know, God, I don't know, fifteen years. You know, maybe one record here, one record there, and then, I mean, the past ten years, I've been doing a lot of record. I mean, I don't even know how many recordings I've done with him. I know I did, I've done six with this band Simulacrum alone, which is this heavy metal organ trio, and I mean, plus. You know, a bunch of other stuff, mm-hmm. and you know, every summer, you know, gigs in Europe with these these big Zorn festivals, and he is, you know, I mean, he is, you know, incredible composer. He's a he's a he is a force of, you know, nature out there in the music world, and he's, I mean, he's kind of like Picasso or something. He's so prolific. How does preparing to either work in the studio or work live with him differ from preparing for other uh, musical outfits that you're part of? Well, I mean, what Zorn does that. I think all the sort of great, I mean, you go back even, you know, to even to Duke Ellington and what, you know, the great composers who deal with improvised music is they get the people to come, they know how to write for their musicians. So Zorn has this pool of musicians he works with, incredible. Rebo, Joey Barron, you know, Trevor Dunn, Kenny Wallison. He's got this like, this sort of yeah. standard, plus, you know, and that's expanded now into Julian Lodge and all these, you know, he's got a, he's, he has an incredible pool of musicians that he works with, but he, so he works with them and he writes something and then he gets inspired and then he writes something else. And he, what, and he has this uncanny way of seeing things in musicians that maybe they haven't done or haven't been exploited on recordings yet. 
and he writes something like that and he also has this way of you know you know pushing our limits and yet it's still fun so i mean it, it, the preparing i mean you just got sometimes you got to practice the music because it's hard yeah. <laughs> but there's really no preparing because he's like you know he, he he has this way he works he works with you for what you are and what you do and what you can do so what's what it, you could do and he sees that and that's how he writes so what's it like then after recording with him and then like going on tour with a different project is it hard to adjust after yeah. being like you know schooled essentially no, I mean not for me. I mean I, I've always, you know, I've always been like that since I was a kid. I've always done a lot of different kinds of music. I mean, uh-huh. it's interesting. I grew up in Florida. Well, I know you went to high school with my cousin Victoria, not Victoria Elliot. Victoria Pesh. Yes. I didn't know that you. Did I know this? This is a learning interview for John. This may have come up before. Years I vaguely ago, remember your that. First that, chapter is twenty okay. years ago. You know, yeah, and Chris, her brother, uh, right? He's a. I don't know her brother. No, okay. But he's a musician too, I think. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so I, growing up down there, I was like, it was, it, it, I don't know. And then, I, you know, I think it kind of hit home. I don't know if you've seen the Jocko movie. There's yes, a, it was incredible. Yeah, yeah so that, absolutely. But what that reminded me of was something that I hadn't really thought of or put into words was how like diverse the musical scene was in the 70s down there right how right, like no, how exactly. like you, yeah, exactly. I, no, that, that's how it was for me i was a little later like i was late 70s early 80s and he jive was a little older than me but the scene was like you played everything it wasn't it wasn't a segregated musical scene it's well, like you played whole, jazz you played country you play yeah. i played broadway shows i did all kinds of stuff my it's dad very different then yeah my dad there. was like you'd play for a goat screwing if they Called you to do it. Yeah, probably would. Quickly, no one has changed though. I mean, the, Miami at that time in the '60s and '70s were old, old Jews, you know, and like, and and it just, it changed so quickly to what it's now become. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking a lot of time. The amount of change. I mean, then again, New York's changed too. But well, there's the, there's there was difference. the Cuban influence there. Huge, well, you know, all the different influences. And you talk in. about the other thing is like you know you you know you want to. It's the, I look at it more as like the retired New Yorkers. Yes, yes. Right? And so you take that, and you know, you take that, you know, this is pre-DJ when I was there. There were bands. There were bands in clubs everywhere with yeah. you know, horn sections and backup singers. So you'd go out, and, you, and you know, a lot of great players from New York who got oh, yeah. sick of the grind. Well, that's where and uh, Dr. Lonnie Smith used to hide yeah. out in uh, at, at O'Hara's Pub. Yeah, yeah. But these guys were playing weddings and stuff in New York, and they were like, you know what? I'm tired of this. Let's go down to Florida and do yeah. it. So there was a certain level of musicians that was really high. Who were you, who were you spotting out there when you were a kid? What uh, what musicians were you seeing in Florida when you were a kid? Oh, I mean, a lot of stuff. I, I would just see stuff that would come down. I just played with all yeah. kinds of people. I mean, I played. I actually played with Jocko a bunch. Jocko Pastore. Yeah, when I was a, you know a kid down there. Yeah, and I had. This, oh my gosh! And actually, I don't know. There's this project that's happening right now, um, coming out called Saudades. Have you seen this? No. You might want to look it up. Okay. It's new. This um, Chuck Doom is putting it together. And uh, I was in my first sort of, I guess, real band with him when I was like, you know, 15, 16. He was a little mm-hmm. older. He played bass. And um, now, after 30, whatever, 40 years, we're doing something again and it's taken off. And it's actually That's really, amazing. it's a really cool project. I think it's going to, it could hit pretty hard. It's amazing. And I want to, first of all, goat screwing, I'd go with a Raga. But. Yeah, you know, I, as an improviser, I'd have to, I'd have to feel, I'd have out. to feel it out. Right, yeah. <laughs> but Jocko, take us into that room. What, what, what were your interactions with him? What, what was your impressions oh, of man. him as a young? You know, everybody's got so many stories. I, I, I am reluctant always because the guy, you know, he, he was amazing, and um, everyone has tons of stories, and everybody's always talking about. So I don't, like, I haven't, I don't like. 
I don't know. I don't like to talk about it that much, but I had I was in this band, and he used to come down, and he would come off, pop up second set, and just play. You know, his brother-in-law was the drummer in the band, and Bobby Thomas Jr. from percussion. It you was know, from Weatherport would play percussion sometimes, and you know, it, I don't know. It was just a, it was a scene down there, and he would come in and sit in like second set, just take over the stage and play. Huh. Wow. And then I ran into him. We actually did. I don't know how many, maybe six or seven. Of, it was this place called the Musicians Exchange, and they did this afternoon sure. standards thing. So we would do, I would do that with him. Like, it would be him and a couple different drummers. I think, you know, it was like, you know, we did six or seven gigs like that. There were jam sessions he came to. He was always really nice to me. And I think he was, you know, he was entering a pretty heavy, yeah. you know, phase in his life. was post-weather report, you know. I played, you know, I played... A jam session with him where he was in a full body cast after he fell off that balcony in Italy. And he played upright bass mm. and we played Mercy Mercy and it was he grooved his ass off still. Even even with the body cast. <laughs> wow. Played upright. And um you know, I mean he actually did I mean I yeah, he asked me to go on the road with him. When he, I think it some, my mom was like, no way. You know, I was 16. Just and she was <laughs> that like, might have been a good call. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You might have gotten caught up in all that. I don't know, but man. It been it's been it's out, pretty good for me right now. I mean, I feel good that how things have gone. I probably wouldn't have done what I did, you know. But yeah. um, but he was really supportive, really great. And he, like, he sometimes he'd come, you know, this place, the exchange, he would sit down, because you know, I played a lot of classical. He'd be like, hey, play that Beethoven thing, you know. And so I'd play, and then he'd sit down at the piano and just play his huh. ridiculous, you know, sort of modern, soulful, harmonic thing that he had. I mean, he was a great piano player. I mean, he was incredible. When he sat in, would like the word get around and the room fill up as the set went? The room on? was usually pretty full already. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. it was a small room, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a small, yeah, it was a small room, and it was yeah. But I mean, that was it was, a, it was a, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know, man. You know, I was in high school, and I, you know, I, I probably couldn't get in those clubs. If it was now, well, that was the thing. Back no, then it was no, fine. Back then, though, you see, I'm I'm maybe a, a little bit of a generation behind you there, but I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, and I would go down to O'Hara's and some of these other clubs, and you know, that wasn't allowed in, but the drummer, you know, Danny Berger would be there, yeah. and he'd be like, "Let me in," you know, and the bouncer's like, "All right, just don't drink," but yeah. that wouldn't happen now, I don't think. I don't think high school kids. I mean, are when I was a kid, I think the age was 18. Yeah, you we'll know, so that's... it was a whole other thing. <laughs> that was the shift there. <laughs> We've had a lot of. Uh, musical deaths lately and one of which is Art Neville and I bring that up because I read somewhere that one of the few times you were a little uh, nervous was when you had to step into his shoes and play with the meters is that correct or was it Foundations of Funk well, I've been playing with Foundations of Funk and um, yeah I mean I uh, mean art's here's art, art's the great I mean art is you know for I mean what for I mean for me as like one of the as an organ player he's one of the great sort of like, you know, iconic influences. I mean, there's certain people, you know, you can't, it's undeniable. And what art did, you know, that, for that style, it's like, it's, there's no way not to have it be an influence, I think, you know. But is there a thing with the meters, you're looking for certain lines and that's, you, you always have a foundation of rhythm and that comes from, from your monk love, but you like to do whatever. When you're sitting in that's for art Neville, scientist love. and meters fans are looking for certain keyboards parts, you're not, are you cognizant of that or are you just doing Well, I mean, there's certain classic, I mean, there's certain classic stuff you got to play because that's the, the melodies, you know? Yeah. And I mean, in that style, I love that style, you know? So for me, it's like, I do, I still want to be myself, but I can't, you can't help. And also when Zigaboo and George Porter are playing, it pulls you because yeah. like if you because like, for me it's really it's really about like I'm not thinking about it I'm feeling it sure. and so you have those guys playing and it's gonna pull you in a certain direction anyway 
And there are certain parts to those songs that are the parts. And so, yeah, I learned the parts to the songs. And then, I mean, I've always done that for me. It's like, you know, like jazz, study, whatever it is. It's like, you know, the, you, there's a certain discipline to learning the basics, the real, you know, the foundation. And then when you internalize it, then you can kind of do your own thing. And I mean, I've grown up with that music. I mean, but in terms, there is an Art Neville story where I was playing with, um, it was with Zig and George Schofield and some of the horn players from the Dirty Dozen. And we were playing the Holland Wolf in New Orleans. And we were about to, we were just, they just started Just Kiss My Baby. And I feel this tap on my shoulder. And I turn around and it's like Art Neville in a tux standing there. And I was just like, oh man. <laughs> I just walked away and let him play it was amazing <laughs> and he literally in about three seconds he played one thing on the clavinet that was just the funkiest thing uh, and then he stopped and started playing organ but it was just yeah it was amazing so can you t- talk about the, the monk and his influence and how even in the craziest wildest mmw stuff you still have a rhythmic center in the back of your head when you're thinking right yeah well i mean yeah i and, mean of course i mean and, rhythm is that where it all comes from i mean to me, it all music, all music starts from rhythm. It's like this impulse you have inside you that comes. And rhythm doesn't mean it has to be a groove or in time. Rhythm is just where you place something in the time space continuum, like where like where you put it. So it can be it can be free in terms of the time, or it can be rubato as they call it, in mm-hmm. you know as the musical term. But you can it's just but how and where you place something is the rhythm of it. So to me, that's like where it starts, and then from there, you know you. From that, from where that, from that rhythm comes a melody, and then the harmony and all that stuff can, you know, follows that. But I really feel like rhythm is the first and foremost. And yeah, I mean, I mean, Monk's an interesting choice because I mean, to me, like you know, all, every one of Monk's songs, each one of them has its own unique rhythmic component and skeleton and and, and form to it. And you know, that's a whole. I mean, people play the songs and they play the melodies and they improvise on the chord structure and stuff. But to me, there's also, there's something to the rhythm of the melody that is actually also an interesting, you know, uh, well, it lead you to thinking you're, something's going to happen yeah. almost intentionally, but you can use You can use the, that rhythm as a way to improvise. You can ignore the harmony and the notes that he's playing and use that, use that rhythm. And you can still, it's still going to feel like that song. You know, that's the thing about, for me about his music, but that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. It's <laughs> a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Which is coming out in June of 2020. Um, so, in, but you feel that way with this, with this band. Can you talk about creating with this band and, and is the material Ooh, for your the next... skillet? Yeah, with the skillet. The mad skillet? The mad skillet. No, you know, it's just like this band had, I think, uh, it's just very natural and I think with Terrence and Kirk as the rhythm section, there's just, you know, I mean, they're, I mean, Kirk is, you know, part, I mean, he's, I mean, he was one of the founders of the Dirty Dozen. He's like, he's in, I mean, they they are really from New Orleans and of New mm-hmm. Orleans. Does it take some pressure off you, though, having sousaphone, having that bass down there? Yeah, you don't have to play as many bass lines. Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't have to. Not even pressure, well, but. Well, I didn't, uh, Chris Wood played some good bass lines, too. You know, every uh, once, yeah, in, every yeah. once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, you know, I've played with some great bass players. George Porter, Jack Bruce, yeah, yeah. Chris Wood, you know, and now and Kirk, is, Kirk, is one, Kirk is one of them. Uh-huh. Well, he's one of the greatest. I mean, on the low end, he's so it's like unbelievable what he does and how strong his groove is. And also, he's an incredible composer, and he thinks like a produ- and he thinks very musically, and he's super intuitive. Like, you know, he, you know, because really the thing about the New Orleans music is they're 
ESP is part of the tradition. Mm-hmm. Like, right. Just knowing when to go to the next thing. Knowing, you know, just n- yeah. tuning in and feeling when that, when that change is going to happen or it needs to change or something's going to happen. And yeah. Kirk is like, he is, you know, and Terrence too. They both like, you know, they both feel that. Because that's part of their, you know, it's part of their fabric. And so getting to play with them and having that, that groove like that is is for for both Will and I. It's just a freaking blast. You know? And are you you're touring? You're touring. Uh, I mean, you have the album out, but are you playing strictly off the album? You have a lot of new stuff. Are you no, bringing we have covers. Is it organic? Are you picking new, up stuff on the road? Old. We have all kinds of stuff, and we you know we add something here. You know, every every tour will add something. You do a couple dirty dozen songs. We do a couple. Of, sometimes we do some dozen songs. Sometimes we do some do other other tunes of Will's. Some you know, and mine other songs. We started doing this Eddie Harris tune, nineteen seventy four. Mm. On you know. Yeah, we pull out some stuff. So if you just, if someone feels something, Terrence, like you know, let's 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 do this tonight. You're, you guys are open for it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, everybody, this band, it, everybody learns pretty quick. So if we want to pull out a new song and sound check, we can do it and try mm-hmm. it. But I bet there's a lot of spontaneity. I bet each 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 of the four you brought a few songs to the studio and then just improvised them to their finality. Or oh, absolutely. Studio yeah, finality. Every song is just a. Uh, Sort of a, a skeleton, skeleton or, or yeah, a launching yeah. pad for, and and every night it's different depending on where it falls in the set. You know what the room feels like. And that, that kind of follows you too. That's kind of, yeah. I mean that's not just that's very big your style. I mean yeah. with MMW that was always yeah, yeah, you yeah. don't know what you're getting. It could be it could be a very mellow night. It could be just you know off your shit. You yeah, know, just, of course. You know, improvise in the I like studio. To do that. You improvise in the studio. Yeah. Well, we did that with this band. I mean, two of the songs on the record were came out of complete mm. improvs. Psychedelic Rhino and Tune in a Can were both like things that made, and then I took it and I, you know, produced, edited it, and put it together and made those tunes. And now we play them as songs. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I see when I hear Psychedelic Rhino, I see like a tide-eyed Rhino tap dancing to the sousaphone notes. <laughs> good for do you. Do you see that good too? For, not, no, but that's good for you. <laughs> what do you see here on this uh, ink spill here, no, Rob? No, I, I mean, good what? coffee. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> Like, that's the thing is like, I really I mean that's but that's what we started off talking about is like for me that's what it's about it's about it's it's not defined you know what you're supposed to feel true but in the studio you're kind of when you decide when you decide on the final take that is one definition of the song that's going to be absolutely. out there absolutely but my thing is is like especially with instrumental music what so, different people are going to 
experience something a little different depending on where they're coming from. I mean, on a simple, basic level, I mean, you know, and I realize this with Modesky, Martin, and Wood, is like some people called us jazz. And to some people, there was no way in hell were we jazz. We yeah. were rock. And it really it all depended on, like, if you grew up listening to rock, yeah. anything without words was jazz. And if you grew up really listening to jazz, we were, there's no way we were jazz. You know what I mean? And it's, then you start getting into, well, that's the perspective of the listener. And so I can't even think about it. I just got to, like, make this music that feels good to me, how it feels good, and then let people, you know, have their experience. So is there more Matt Skill? Are you going to record again? Well, is there any material that you're toying with on the road now, potentially part of a next release? Possibly. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of new things. Um, I think if we do another record, which hopefully we will, yeah, I don't know. We're gonna. It'll be something. We, I think we'll have to like you know, get in there and and see you know really push to come up with something. Well, that's because be I, to me it has to be something. If we're going to do another record, I really wanted to move somewhere into new territory. This band's just your insurance so you can be at Jazz Fest every year with more gigs. You need more gigs at Jazz Fest. I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to get a gig like, at Jazz Fest. <laughs> George Porter, where is he at the moment? You know? Oh, man. Yeah. It, oh, yeah. Medeski's a pre-first call keyboardist at Jazz Fest. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to do it. You know, I was like, this, last year I wasn't even going to go. And then I ended up. Yeah, getting one gig that I couldn't say no to, and then I, all right, I'm only going to do one weekend, and then it, I still managed to have, yep, yep, you know, I don't know, 18 gigs. <laughs> and and Will, of course, I don't want to. I mean, Will has been a part of your musical life for a long, long time. Do you remember when you first met him? I mean, you know, I the thing is, like, I really Will and I only met about 10, 11 years ago. We, is like, that right? Yeah, I know. I mean, I've, they I knew were about him. Jam Cruise together, Rob. No, I knew yeah. him from like you know when, from when he was with T.J. Kirk. I knew about him. Oh yeah. But we, you know, we were just in our. He was on the West Coast, man. He was. I was so. on the East Coast. He was out there being Mr. Berkeley, and <laughs> and and so, it, yeah, I think it was really. It was like a gig at Jazz Fest, and then he we did Blue Plate Special, and that really is where we connected. And then we started doing these gigs every year at New Orleans during the Jazz Fest, and it was just a blast. And, you know, I mean, Will is like, I mean, there's no one, there's few that um, guitarists who are as versatile and can really handle in the in a real and deep way so many styles of music yeah. and still be themselves, you know? I mean, Rebo, Mark Rebo is one, maybe. Will it's not, it's just, I can't, there's not a lot of other people. There's a lot of great guitar players. And a humble out there. cat too, like just huh? super super yeah. humble. Well, yeah, and oh I, yeah. Well, I don't know. You got to hang out with him a little no, longer. <laughs> but it does come out his playing. He could shred over the top, and he weaves a lot, yeah. and that is part of a lot of your band's and, no, success. I think, I think you know what I, I would say. You, the, the way you know that he is humble is like on his own records, he's never loud enough. Huh. Wow. Check out. That's why. That's why on the skill record, he's like, "Is the guitar too loud?" I'm like, "No, it's a guitar. It's supposed to be loud." It's like the opposite of Steve Miller, uh, <laughs> you know. Can you talk about Nels Klein? And I know we're running out of time, but Nels, no, um, you've got to play with Nels Klein a few times. A right? bunch, yeah. I love Nels. And he, no, he's he, incredible. Now, okay, the first time I played with Nels, just just was we and Medeski Wood had a run of the Blue Note. You know, whatever six nights or whatever it was, and we had we decided we we're gonna have a different guest each night, mm. and we called Nels, having never played with him, really, never met him, and he came up, and it was it was one of those things where it's sort of like the sort of sonic chemistry was so instant, and and the thing about Nels, you don't realize that he Nels doesn't even really read music, 
He's just straight up avant garde. No, mean, but he can he hear. No, but he's he he would hear like he would hear stuff that we were doing, and like he was like he, like, he was like creating parts. Like he was part uh. of the band. Like we'd play a tune of ours, literally, that he had never heard, and he would be playing it like he knew it, and like he really? yeah, it was like his his Weird. ears are so he's so like I mean his his he's a very smart guy. He's you yeah. know very well read. Very you know he's got a very big smart brain, and he like you know was was really able to like what was surprising. I think you know in addition to being like coloristic and sonically just amazing which we love exploring the colors and sounds he also like really tapped into what was happening in the music and found parts and heard what was going on like instantly and just added things it was kind of amazing so we pursued that we ended up doing the record with him the woodstock sessions which is from a live thing and then we actually did a show in new orleans with him during jazz fest a couple two years ago it was a blast so anytime we get to play with him it's great playing with him this uh in new york with billy martin nels and scott metzger oh that was that the uh billy wasn't that billy's uh charity event right at uh brooklyn bowl wasn't that no this is coming up oh oh, this is is like in in december like sometime late night show i don't know i thought there was something last spring we did we did that too at the at um, poisson rouge okay yeah with chris lightcap on bass and billy and yeah it was that was a blast too steve bernstein yeah, Bernstein. That's Ju- right. I think he Julian Lodge came up and played. Yeah, it was fun. So you didn't know him personally, but you knew of his work with Wilco and Eddie. yeah. And I, well, I knew about him from his, you know, sort his of previous stuff. Yeah, I knew about that because that was avant garde. But he was also like West Coast, and I didn't know him. I knew about him and, and heard him, and you know, knew what he's doing in Wilco, of course. But I didn't, you know, you don't like I was saying, you don't know what's going to happen just because somebody's great doesn't mean that. You're, there's going to be a chemistry, or that right. you're, or yeah. you're going to get along. I mean, I've had that happen a lot, where people, you know, pr- people have put together this super band of, <laughs> you know, whoever guys, and they, it's it's okay. It's never terrible, yeah. but it's not always magic, you know. And yeah. so when that magic happens, it's like it's good to notice it and so feel when, it. When you're feeling that, though, on the other side of the you know the stage where the fans are listening, we're feeling it too. Are you connecting to that as well, or are you, I you just care get lost less in about the- you? No, yeah, no, of course. That's I think, but but to me, that's the where it's real, you know. Because I this is what I and I still have to believe this in order to continue doing music. And even though I mean, I feel like sometimes I'm pushing a dead horse up a steep hill. It's I do believe that you know if if we're really feeling it. Then somebody out there is going to feel it too, you yeah. know. And and I do believe that. I feel like when that when, the, when it's really happening. I mean, sometimes maybe the music's too weird for people. I don't expect everyone to get everything. And and in the language of music, you know, if somebody's speaking a language that I don't understand, I'm not going to know what their conversation's about. And I think that can happen in music too. Well, if they're using their hands, you might have an idea. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> you get a better idea, and you're the, from the tone and stuff. But still, and I feel like music can be like that. And not every not everything is for everybody, and not everyone likes everything. But I do feel like when you when that when that vibe is happening, it's undeniable. Yeah. You know, when, and whether you, whatever you is going on and you feel it. And I feel like live, you get that more than even on recordings because you're, you know, you're in the room experiencing it. But it's also interesting with a, with when, with such an improvisational band or any of the bands you play with in that sense that are all bulk inspir, uh, um, it's just kind of interesting for a, for a, for a fan to listen and, and have the idea of what the album sounds like, and then go and want that because we we crave that. Even though we say we don't, we we do. We want but that familiarity, and then it just goes somewhere else. Yeah, I guess the truth is like I never wanted that when I went and saw music. I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted the feeling, but I didn't necessarily. It didn't need to come from the same notes. You know, it's like I, 
And you're not someone who hears a song on the radio and is like, I got to see that band. And I, well, I, I, need, to, I, need, I need to hear it exactly like it was. I, right. I mean, for me, it's like I get bored with that. I mean, sure. I guess it's like, it's like a Broadway show or something. I mean, it can be great. And Recital. I think it can be great. I mean, it's also like classical music. I think you yeah. can. I mean, it's not. I don't think one's better than another because it's like it can be great to take something. Right. That you know that you're going to do exactly the same every time, and you can transcend. You can right. transcend that in a different way. For me, though, it's about like doing something in this moment right now that'll never happen again. That's for this moment. But and when you first created that song, though, one of the things that happens with uh, a lot of lyrical musicians, these songs have meaning, and and when they wrote it, it meant one thing, and years later. It maybe doesn't mean the same thing, or the fans want to hear it, but that was like a really hard time in their life, and now it's something different. With with improvisational music, does any of that carry through, or is it the song's a song, and it's what it was then and where it is now? I think, you know, uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, I think it depends. I think anything can become routine, and anything can become a caricature of itself or automatic pilot you know i mean i was like you know why do you think miles stopped playing standards you know that he did i mean you think about what he did with them <laughs> with you know he blasted it open to the point like what's he going to do anymore so he you know he moved on and he wouldn't go back and do that people wanted to hear that he got criticized people didn't want right right you know but right. he's also miles and not everyone's yeah, miles was, yeah. you know but i think for any improvised musician it's like you know you want to keep i think it's about you're looking to create a certain vibration you know and part of that create that vibration is that you feel a certain thing. And sometimes you need to do something new in order to feel that thing and to create that vibration. But a lot of times people don't want to hear that. You know, they want to hear the same old thing. I don't know. It's, a, it's sort of a complicated thing. That's how it is for me, though. I like to do new things. And I like to, I'm looking to sort of create a certain feeling. Sometimes it has to be, we need something new. You know? But over the course of time, you've, Generated a fan base that appreciates that. Yeah, but we also, but we also played a lot of the same songs over and over. <laughs> I mean, okay, another example is Coltrane. The late yeah. Coltrane, he played the same songs, right? Every night, but they would be totally. He would just, they were just like these launching pads to go into to well, go exactly. into his yeah, thing. Right. So they're just, and I think music, for, you know, songs could be like that. And that's kind of how I feel about it. Like you know, I don't really care what it is. It's just like, where do we take it? You know, where do we take this song tonight? Where's it going to go? And can we get that feeling? You know. I think there's so many ways to get that. I want, well, go ahead. So one, one other quick question for you that kind of changes the subject just a little bit. Uh, you did the kids' album. Are you guys going to do anything? Do you have anything coming up that might be touching that again? Because I know that you know my kid fucking loves that album. That's all about no. kids these days. I, lo- I know. Tell me about it. I, we, I love that record. No, we don't. I mean, we did that. And it's just that. It. I mean, no, I mean yeah. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe we'll do another kid. You should. Skillet. I mean, Matt Skillet. The thing is, is it's, it's so good for these kids to be able to catch on to that music. It it opens them up. It, it really does. Yep. And, it, and it, you know, it's long lasting. Another thing you won't do, at least in this chapter, is work with Jack Bruce. But can you talk about how that came along? It was a to- this Tony Williams Lifetime tribute band, Vernon Reed, I think, Vernon sort Reed. of spearheaded it. And it was Jack Bruce and Cindy Blackman. On drums, wow. Cindy Blackman Santana now, and and it was freaking blast. And Jack was, oh, he was awesome. He was, I mean, he's a trip. He was a trip, but he's super brilliant. And, you know, the thing is, like, I, when I listen, used to listen to those records, I didn't. I mean, I loved Larry Young, and I was, you know, into the whatever, that that lifetime era. And meeting and hanging out with Jack and talking to him, playing with him, I realized why. I mean, Tony Williams, you know, loved Jack. 
mm. as a musician and everything. And I that says a lot. And I realized, you know, I really came to understand why, you know, hanging out with him and playing with him and talking to him. He, you know, what he, you know, how much he knew about music. And then going back and checking out some of his catalog that I hadn't heard. He, man, he never sat back right. and just wrote out his fame. And you know, and he wrote, you know. Sunshine of, I mean, he wrote those songs. He wrote, yeah. you know, he wrote some of the, you know, politician. He was a principal, he he, was a principal songwriter, uh, a vocalist, too, really. Yeah, and he had a great voice, man. He was amazing. Have you listened to a lot of Cream Improv, like the real deep improv? Okay, guess what? Do you know who's responsible for that? Jack Bruce. After playing with him, I mean, that, you, know, you wonder why you don't hear that kind of stuff much hmm. anymore. Because Jack, when, <laughs> when I realized playing with him, is like, you're not done till he decides you're done soloing. Your solo's not over. Like <laughs> yeah, I was, I'm playing like you're I'm kind of ready to wind this up, and it's like, nope, you're not winding this up. We're still, and I think that's what was happening in Cream. Like Interesting. it was relentless, and you know, I mean, I think that's what was happening. That's why these jams are. That's why they keep going because Jack just kept pushing, and I felt it. Like he just, like you know, just you know, and but that to me is part of a true musical dialogue, mm-hmm. and I personally love that i wasn't like oh he's not following me i was like great man he wants to go one more let's go one more you know he's like, he's put, you know yeah they push it push you know okay push me and then let's see where we end up you know and i love that he was like that he really would like you know just keep it wasn't over till he decided it was over <laughs> <laughs> you're out of breath just like <laughs> yeah oh yeah Oh, and I have another really great story. I mean, he, his bass was so powerful on stage. We played the Blue Note in New York, and his bass was making the ceiling crumble on my head. And they, they had to hang, they had to hang a tarp because it was, it was like it was either you know, Jack, can you turn down, or we're going to hang a tarp. So they hung a tarp up over my head to catch the crumbling ceiling from his bass notes. Yeah, oh it was man! Great. What do you ever talk about, Clapton? Oh, and one time, no, sorry, another time, we were playing. It was um the. Uh, where was it? In Seattle somewhere. And, I mean, Cindy Blackman's a powerful drummer. And it was me and Jack between us and then Cindy and Vernon. And we started playing. And I couldn't even hear Cindy. The bass was so... Oh my <laughs> I had to put in earplugs. Uh. Yeah, it was amazing. And get a little monitor to be able to hear. He was... Yeah, he was great. I loved him, man. And we would hang out and listen. He, knew cla- he really was into classical music. And we'd, listen- we'd hang out and listen to Messiaen. And he was a beautiful... Yeah, like really... He was the real deal, like artist, rock and you know, rock star, but artist. He wasn't just, you know, a prima donna rock star. He mm-hmm. was really, I mean, he was into it, man, into the pure. He was really purely into music. He really, you know, I mean, he would fly around Europe to go see classical concerts that he wanted to see, you know, great contemporary stuff. Like he knew contemporary music. And, and that's the thing is he thought like that. When you improvise with him, you could feel it. I mean, the vocabulary was whatever it was, rock, sort of this rock vocabulary we were playing in one chord, two chords, three chords, whatever it was. But the sensibility, the way it was very is super modern. Do you find if a song is composed more, if there's more complexity to the composition of the song, that it can be less conducive to impro- improvisation? Absolutely. I mean... Is that the problem no, with prog rock? It's I a, mean, I love prog rock, but... It's a but. different kind of improvisation. You know what I mean? You aren't, because basically, if you think about improvisation, it's like, what does that mean? If, when, when you, let's say you have, let's say, like, because I love completely free improvisation, which, I, which is kind of like, it's like spontaneous composing, where, you know, if you're doing it right, that's what it is, and you're coming up with everything. The melody, the harmonies, the rhythm, the form, everything is being created in that moment. But 
The more things that are predetermined, the less you're making up. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, kind, of, it's yeah. kind of that simple. So when, there's, when, the, when, the, when the canvas is blank, you make up everything. When you have this structure, you are making up the parts you can make up relative to the structure. Sure, the structure can open up at points. Well, yeah, or you can have maybe an idea that happens and then the middle part's really open and you can play on whatever. I mean, that's the thing. Like, look at jazz. That's, that's, that's kind of how it developed. It used to be you had to play the song form, but then Ornette Coleman right. came along and suddenly it wasn't about playing the song form. Was, you know, and, and then, I mean, there's so many different... Then I think there was, became this example. How, what are the different ways that we can use certain material as the you know impetus or you know starting and ending point yeah of, i like that of, launch i like that launching point because then you go and you make that you just you jump you go left right wherever but you know where you're coming back also yeah i mean i like that i mean i love that and i mean you know and then a lot like a lot of rock or prog rock there's like you know it's sort of you know it's like the the chord is decided and what the groove is decided so there's not a lot to do other than just play you know some cool licks on top of it you know, did uh, but, Jack Bruce ever make fun of Clapton for turning his back on improvisation? <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean you know, I love Eric Clapton, but the improv yeah. kind of well, went away. I, I guess that's what I was trying. That's what I was just implying. Yeah, yeah. Where that really came from in that band? Yeah, I mean Clapton sure. was amazing. You know, yeah. there's no question. We, and so, he did in the '70s on the Santana oh, tour. He well, did a lot also of improv. Show, I mean, he's. I mean, he could do whatever he wants, and he's doing what he wants. You know, sure. and he did what he wants, and he's like, you know, you know I think. A, He's he's great, incredible guitar player, and you know, I think. Um, but I do think that you know there was something. You know, Jack really there was something about that little combination of people who really pushed him in a certain direction. That I mean, and and he you know and he rose to the occasion a hundred percent. You know, it's not like you know <laughs> he certainly wasn't um, you know laming out. He was right in there playing his ass off. But I think you know you know but Jack really. Provide, I think, a certain impetus when I listen. Now, when I hear that stuff, I'm like, "Oh man, of course, I feel it." But you never came across Ginger, huh? You never came across Ginger Baker. I met him at Jack's funeral. Oh, wow, yeah, heavy. Now, yeah, I mean, you know, Ginger. I heard stories from Jack. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, you've seen the movie, right? Oh God, yes. And I mean, we we saw we saw the guy that made that like right after he got his nose busted. Yeah, mm. Ginger basically went on him with a cane, and the, guy, the oh, that right. was at the end. That was the, the, yeah. the show at the beginning, but it was after he had made the whole movie. He went, right. he, he 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 came to the car and just like, does he got through to Ginger like nobody ever has? I would uh, nobody documenting, no journalist ever has. Uh, would you say? I think so. We got the real Ginger. We got something. <laughs> we got something that was fun to watch and. Well, God bless Ginger. He's not, he's not doing well. But speaking of doing what you like, that's what you're doing now with Mad Skillet. I love the Wood Brothers, and I love the things Billy are doing. So I'm not saying that with any reservations about what's going on in any of your careers yeah. now. But here in Atlanta, it's been almost five years since MMW played, and there is still a hunger for MMW. Is there a chance somewhere down the road? I know no, there's nothing on the books. Chris Wood. It's, it's really a Chris thing, huh? I'll tell you what. We'll call Oliver right now, and then he can talk to Chris. <laughs> you, do you, have you seen the Wood Brothers? Have you sat in with him? Have I seen him? I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah, no, I produced their first two records. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I sit in them when I, whenever I see, yeah, I love them. Are you kidding? Oliver's yeah. from here. Yeah, I know. No, and Oliver had sat in with MMW a bunch of times when we uh, came here. Yeah, I remember and we, that. And we used to come uh, yeah, in and exactly. we'd go like out and see music. I mean, I'll, you know. I, you mean, can, I, I think you came out to love, one of his sessions yeah. at uh, Java Monkey, actually. Yeah, you I love that. Oliver. You know, I love those guys. And I, I, I mean, I, they, I, I'm, it's amazing. I'm so happy they're, they're rocking it. You know, but, you know, Chris is really busy with that. Yeah. And, 
I don't know. We'll see. I mean, we're, we're, we have, we're sort of working on another record. There's a little film coming out of us making that yeah, record that's cool. coming out. Actually, he's going to premiere at the Woodstock Film Festival this Friday, I think. Billy will be the only one who's going to be there. But... Um, <laughs> Because right, you know, well, those things get booked so late, you know, the film f- world is a whole other thing. Huh. And like I, was already, I already had this booked and other stuff. You know, it's like, I would love to have been there, but you can't let me know a month before that it's <laughs> yeah. happening. I'm, you know, we're, fortunately, Billy is around and he's able to go be there. Um, but, you know, I, you never know. I mean, I think uh, I would do it. I mean, I'll, you know, there's still, I mean, honestly, when we get to, you know, there's still, the band still has a chemistry. We never thought we'd last as long as we did. I mean, we never planned on it. We didn't. You know, because we were like, okay, we made a vow when this, when we start to become like, you know, just a tragic, you know, caricature of ourselves, we got to stop. You know, when we, or when we get tired of doing this, we don't like it anymore. We're just doing it because for the money or whatever, you know, but that never happened, <laughs> actually. You know, we decided, we decided, no, we should take a year off because we just, we've been talking about taking a year right. off forever and we did and then this, and now it's been yeah. years, a couple of years. But, um, Wait, but you, you mix things. I mean, you came on Jam Cruise last year, you did, did you do Jazz Fest? I feel like you might have. No, you did, uh, we did Nels Klein. We did a thing with Nels Klein like yeah. two years ago, yeah. But no, I feel like you did, um, no, you did a couple. Of, no, you did Halloween. That was what the last time I think I saw you guys. Yeah. So you, you know, like, I don't think you had anything before or after that. It's well, just we haven't been to Atlanta sudden. in a long time. You know, and, and really, Atlanta was like our second home when we first went on tour. Like I was saying, we used to, we would just drive past DC and just book tours down. Yeah, and, down. You know, from like North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And we'd end up in Atlanta for a few days, hanging out at our friend who, who you mm-hmm. know, stayed at her place at the homage. You know, Megan's had this great place. And then we just started playing. Then, we, then I started Colonel Bruce. We met Colonel Bruce in Knoxville. Is that right? Yeah. Let's, you know, let's not forget uh, my my gigs that I got him to finally play in Tallahassee. Rob, excellent. Well done. <laughs> How about he, loves, that? he loves when I talk about I Tallahassee. Saw a cat's crater once in Chapel Hill. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Colonel Bruce, what are your memories of him? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, he's. I'm one of the guys he guessed my birthday correctly. Nice. Yep. And he. Um, I remember the first time we played with him was it was this crazy awesome promoter Chuck Burnley in Knoxville, Tennessee. We would go to we used to play. We had this weird, you know, Knoxville was also a weird home for us in the you know early mid nineties. You know, it was actually it was a pretty. This is like again, it's hard to understand that there was no jam band scene. There was none of these bands were out there. There wasn't even that word. What year are you talking about? Huh? What year? 94 yeah yeah 93. so yeah I mean, you no had, one talked about that let's see that nah, name well, didn't exist you know 96 it started really yeah turning. you know 96 and, 98 7 and i think you know I, maybe when bruce was 93 even but we played knoxville and we played this jazz club called lucille's and then this guy chuck Burner was like you guys should really play somewhere that's not a jazz club and i want to get this guy to come sit in with you from atlanta he's right up your alley he's huh. colonel bruce hampton and we we had no idea. We're like, well, okay, whatever. You know, it's a gig. We drive down there. Sure. Didn't yeah. know anything. Met him. He came, he came up on stage. And we were kind of, you know, we're like, all right, fine, whatever. We'll do this. And, and I, remember, I, remember, I remember exactly the whole thing. Like we did this tune of ours called Hermeto's Daydream, which was, this is from our very first record, Notes from the Underground. It was an acoustic piano tune, kind of crazy. And we started off, and, you know, I mean, Bruce... Everyone who knows him, you know, he, when he tapped in, man, he tapped in and he tapped in. He, we did, we did this whole thing, this beginning. And then like, there's this point like where it's sort of like the solo section starts and he just 
came in like singing these crazy like <laughs> Tuvian throat cruiser like like really like and we just looked at each other we were just like holy shit man this is it was so great did you mention Ty it was so (laughs) it was yeah it was so great and that kind of began this you know I mean everybody he loved you I know that Bruce is another one man there's so many people that had I don't even as I feel weird talking about it so many people had such memories and relationships he touched so many people Mm -hmm. but he yeah it was great I loved him man we I mean it's one of those guys like I, you know, I feel like I never knew him, never hung out with him enough. But we had, yeah, he was super, you, when you did, it was super inspiring. Yeah, absolutely, always inspiring. Everything we ever did with him was great. Every time we saw him, it was just great. He was just always on. Yeah, just I mean, here he'd be on anywhere, you know, restaurants. I mean, yeah. The, the, yeah. my favorite memories are of him playing of as of having a meal with Bruce. There's, I don't yeah. think there's, there's no meal comparison. To having a meal with Bruce yeah. is just the best. And you know, the night he passed, I was actually playing with O'Teal and uh, Johnny V at DBA and Jazz Fest. And how did you get the word? We found out right after. I mean, yeah. who told? Do you remember who told you? Mm-mm. No, and I remember. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I think we had just we had left. You know, we had left our gig, and that's when we found out. Oh, but um, I mean, we were definitely at the time. At that time, we were playing some pretty stretched music. It was actually one of my one of the it was a good test for me at DBA because it's during Jazz Fest and it was um, and it's interesting now that when I look back and I realized that that was going on at the right, same time yeah, and stuff I was like it's kind of pretty cool but we were talk about taking it out we were taking it out hmm. with O'Teal and Johnny V and like Johnny V man I mean he's you know he's a he can be like a down to earth soul but he can also he can well, that's the he thing can with, take it out and keep it out, and that's what happened. Yeah. Like, we were playing literally, we were playing this free, like no tune, this ballad that was as abstract as anything I think I've ever done, which is saying something. And I'm like, and you know, and I, and I, I love, I got no issues doing this. And, and Johnny V was just like, there was no, I don't even know how long it went on, but there was no <laughs> pressure to like, oh, we got to start playing a tune or start grooving. He was just like yeah. painting these tapestries of sound with like so much space. And and it was like, I was almost like, yeah. should we do this? We might, should, well, should we he, play something? But, you know, it was just so beautiful for all of us to just huh. like, to be fear, that fearlessly. But when you see Johnny, you know, like a photo of him and, and you've heard him play, it's hard to be like that guy is the one that I'm listening to. Yeah, you know, he just he doesn't look the part. It's, uh, for I guess me, I don't know because I've only seen him you know, play. <laughs> so now I know what he looks like. The Colonel Wasp was tough on all of us, of course, but O'Teal has such a history with him. I mean, what? Yeah, I mean that must have been it was deep earth shattering for him. And oh, I'm sure it was. I mean, he's no O'Teal's had a rough. It's been rough. Yeah, did yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Did, that night though? I mean, were you yeah. guys? Did you take it as as a group or did he go off? And no, he went off. I talked to him a little later when we found out. No, I mean, he, yeah, it was just, uh, it was it's huge. You know, and then you know, and he just he lost his brother. It's like he's, yeah. he's been through yeah. a lot of loss and friends. A I lot mean, of friends. Yeah, Rico Scott, I mean, John Rico, just yeah, yeah. the other week. I mean, it's it's, it's been rough. A lot, but you know, I think that's the longer we live. Well, you know, so we keep saying that. It's like, is that that, or is there is there unusual amount of death going on right now? Because these guys are, you know, some of them are in their fifties. It's not like they're in their eighties. Yeah, I just, you know, comes in waves. I think you never know. You it does da- come You got to dance while you can. Let's end with this. Either John Schofield or Phil Lesher, both. Do you have a good story of, of to end with? Uh, wow. I don't know. Did you do you rehearse before 
you certainly rehearsed with Schofield. Did you ever rehearse before playing with Phil? Or oh is God, that... we rehearsed. Yeah, I mean, Phil is like you gotta like you, you get... so many songs. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not like I didn't grow. I'm not a dad. I don't grow up with that music. I don't know those songs. So it's just like here's a list of sixty songs for the weekend. <laughs> I gotta like I'm like shedding, writing, making little charts. And Schofield too. We make all these charts and we just get in there. But it's great. And that's you know Phil's that's another cool. one, man. That I, you know playing with him. It's like it's been great to to. Because, you know, there's nothing, it's one thing to listen to somebody on records, and, and, I, and I didn't grow up listening to the dead. I saw them once in 1984 in Providence, Rhode Island, and that was it. Like somebody, that show. So, you know, you know, somebody in college, like, dragged, so, you know, dragged yeah. me to this show, and for me, it was, it was like, you know, being from, you know, Fort Lauderdale, I was like, wow, I've never been in a place this big where there wasn't a fight, you know, it was just like, <laughs> that was like that, you know, and people passing out all, you know just the sharing of substances and just like the openness and you know but I I in China at all high time women are smarter I think it was that show yeah really they opened the second set with playing in the band yeah, and I a couldn't lot of improv. even tell you I have no idea because I didn't know their music for at all smokes as much pot yeah. as you Rob it's amazing that you have a memory like that well I certain things I remember you're like an but, elephant but anyway so I'll tell you I did not know that music I don't know that music I, mean, I, I do now respond to improv in a large setting. Well, I did, and you know, to be honest, I think in a weird, strange way, as much as like you know, when they did their, they did that whole like space thing they do in the middle. Part Drums of me, in space. part of me was like, God, you know, I just want to hear John Coltrane do this. <laughs> Honestly, I'll be honest. That's where I was at at that time. Of my life. I was also a jazz hole at the, in those days. Like I was, you know, I was into like studying contemporary classical music and free jazz, and I was not ready for that but what but let's check this out what i i think that that experience at that gig is part of the seed of what inspired and fed being doing medesky martin and wood the, the idea that okay you know what there's twenty five thousand people here and they're all going with these guys to this place maybe i'd rather hear coltrane but these people are loving it. And, I, and so what I felt, what it, what it made me realize is like, okay, because, you know, I'll tell you, man, it's like the honest truth is like the whole jazz world. When I went to New York, it was a drag that, you know, this whole, like I was saying, like, you know, get a record deal and just like mm -hmm. milk the system and all this stuff. It was a drag. And I went, I remember going and sitting in at like, you know, a jazz club. and we were hanging out at the, the bottom and like, of and these, and this, You know, and these sax players just lining up, yeah. you know, and being in the rhythm section and then just like playing and not listening to a note the rhythm section is playing, just uh -huh. whacking off with their stuff they've been practicing in their in their practice room playing these stupid lines on top of these songs and it's just like this is not what jazz is to me i mean it was like so this was like part of this so yeah, seeing them you. and real and seeing this i'm like you know i was like i i bet you that we can go out and play you know what we do this kind of but it's got a beat and it, but it's a little out there and it's fun and, and, we're, and this, people are gonna there's gonna be some people it's not gonna be twenty five thousand people but it's gonna be some people so in a way like it's strangely that gig planted a seed that it was possible and that there was something else out there other than a well, flash know. forward and now you know mmw does space <laughs> drums at space well we of. always did <laughs> but you know it was you know, it was different it was a little more yeah <laughs> but so i'm just saying like you know it sort of was like that was you know yeah i mean it was it made me realize it was possible that it might be possible to find an audience. And I know you don't like to go back and listen to yourself, but when you have a band like Mad Skillet and you're improvising, this is the last question, do you ever go back and listen to the improv? I know you do it in the studio, but do you ever go back and listen to live improv and source it for potential future songs or is the live no, stuff just never. once you're done, you're done? Never. Never, ever. You're never tempted. I never have with any band I've ever been and listened to live stuff. 
Every once in a while, I'll go check it out just to make sure, you know. <laughs> but I don't ever do it like that. I mean, I, what, what I'll do is I'll set, you know, because to be honest, man, it's like every night there, there could be something. Right. So I like to like say, like, or at least what I've done with bands I've been in is like we set aside these days. We're going to do three days. We're just going to improvise. And we'll just pull out of that. There's going to be something in there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But, you know, maybe we should. Well, thank you, man. Yeah, yeah, thank thank you time. so much for your time. We appreciate right, great. it. Of and course. check out the album, and congratulations on the uh, Grammy. Wow. <laughs> the Grammy that you're going to get. We're yeah, going to remember yeah, listeners. Yeah, we're getting that. Right? <laughs> you should. Well, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's a Mellotron, for God's sake. For God's sake. <laughs> that time a Mellotron got a Grammy. That's right. Long overdue. <laughs> found myself gazing in his eyes a little bit for a while i when we first started the interview i kind of forgot who he was because it was such chaos and then we're sitting down and i'm like man i've seen this guy live like maybe up near a hundred times in all the various incarnations you know such a class act and so such a jazzy guy too you know what i mean so new york jazz to me yeah but not like to an extreme he's no, also he's not egotistical in that sense but he's just and you know what's really funny uh, is that he, he starts off but first of all he doesn't he starts talking about how he's not a talker 
you know, talking about lyrics and music. <laughs> but man, He's we could have sat another hour just kibitzing with him. And I think we will. We'll, we'll talk with him again for sure. He teased that there'll be MMW coming, but hopefully there'll also be more Mad Skillet. Or MMW coming to Atlanta. Well, yeah, I think we pressured him a bit about that, didn't we? Well, I hate to, you know, seven years this December. Come on, dude. And the last time, it was at the Symphony Hall. It was really well attended. And we, what's what's the thanks we get? Seven, it's like the biscuits, kind of, you know, you get the straight arm after you support them. What is that? What is that? <laughs> I'm not going to go and say the restraining order to you this time, Rob. I retired that, if you recall. Yeah, yeah. You need you need a book of new premises, <laughs> and you need it right now. Okay, here's what we're gonna do now. Ooh, what are we gonna do? Well, I interviewed Billy Cobham up on who? Remember, remember that uh, Billy Cobham's legendary drummer played with Miles Davis, played with John McLaughlin's Miles Vishnu. His record Spectrum was one of the best selling fusion records ever. Whoa, and he played with your boy. Jerry Garcia. Well, yeah, but more Bob Weir, and that's the Bobby and the Midnights, which is... Bob, wait, he's on f- Festival. Hey. Is he on it? Hey! <sighs> Leapers, lepers, lunatics, hustlers, whores, and thieves. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but here's the thing about Bobby and the Midnights. They get a bad rap, perhaps because the second record, dude, was, was just awful. The second record was really not... It was called Where the Beat Meets the Street, and that's awful. And uh, there was a silly video called I Want to Live in America. If you haven't seen it and you like to laugh at Bobby, check it out. Um, I'm sure you've seen it. It's made the rounds around the internet. But they were actually really talented. Alfonso Johnson on bass. And um, you had Bobby. You had um, Bobby Cochran, oh, who I thought... was on that, too? Yeah, and Bobby Cochran, who I thought was... Where Eddie- is Alfonso Johnson? Sorry, where is he? Alfonso, give us a call. We miss you. Uh, B- Bobby Cochran, who I always thought... Was uh, Eddie Cochran's son, but I guess he's his nephew. And that's what Billy says here. I don't know. You guys, you guys can square that one out yourself. I think there's a lot of thing fact checking needs to be done in that Billy interview, there, buddy. There is, and we're going to play just a little, sn- <laughs> just a little snippet right just here. Just a little snippet that has a couple inaccuracies, and you deadheads will know them. But it's not, um, not a big enough deal to sort out. Remember, he's 75 years old, so there's right. some some of these things that you know what may have been a month for one could be a week for another. Right. But uh, I also want to point out that in, uh, right after uh, Spectrum was his first uh, band leader CD, Crosswinds was his second, and that's the one he's celebrating with this new uh, record, and we're going to play a track from that, and we're going to talk about that more when we ha- he has his own episode. So we're going to have a little Grateful Dead-related story from Billy Cobham here, and then we're going to end the episode with a piece, a shorter piece of music from him, and then some Medeski stuff. Uh, to close it out. So sorry, were you done? Yes. And one quick thing on this Billy Cobham interview, and you'll you hear it a little bit now, but hear it. you'll hear it more in the in the original episode. While it's a great interview, you do hear um, my lack of experience. I don't I don't have control of this interview. <laughs> I'm kind of hanging I'm kind of hanging by the end of a kite here, you know, and doing the best I can. I didn't want to be rude. He let us into the hotel his hotel room. He doesn't do interviews he that, that much. Um, I was drinking coffee. My, you my drank little... his coffee? No, I didn't touch anybody. Did you Did you have a nice mug or did you use one of your QT? I think it was the QT. <laughs> oh, God. See, you look like a homeless man when you do these things. But that's inviting. You know? No, They're it's not. not. Get, you know what? I'm going to get you a nice WTNS traveler mug. How about an Osiris? I never got any Osiris swag. Hey, like... spend money. You'll get it. Give them money. Spend money? Give them money? We give yeah. them shows. We give, give them, them money. We give them money. Give them money. Speaking of money, if you want to sponsor us, inside out. WTNS at gmail.com. Yeah, I'm coming to you, QT. I'm going to knock on your doors myself as soon as you make that one sheet. Are you going to make that before you leave town? No. 
All right, so here he is, uh, Rob, hanging for dear life, listening uh, and interviewing, listening to and interviewing the great legendary drummer. I did maybe once or twice. Just sitting in? Not much more. But Gar- Keystone Berkeley. Keystone, Keystone Berkeley, Keystone sure. San Francisco. That's yeah. what it was, yeah. You sat in with a Garcia band or with Merle Projects? I think it was with Merle. Mm-hmm. How much did you get to know Garcia? Not much. I don't know if anybody got to know Jerry. <laughs> but you got Except time. for Mountain Girl. Sure. Uh, but I mean, it was never... It was just... Jerry's just an easygoing guy. You know, straight ahead. It was a great... Um, he represented, he was like a titular leader in the music industry for that thing. Like, I had the, kind of the interesting, I can't say honor, but I lived literally at one point on West Blythedale, right next to Bill Graham. His garden with my garden, on with a fence in the middle. And uh, those guys are in and out. You know, a lot of people went but backwards and forwards. It was just so loose and so straightforward, man. It was no big deal. Everybody seemed to know everybody. It was, it was cool. So 1976, you, yeah, it was, yeah. So you started working with Digger Rhythm Man long before the Bobby the Midnight thing, right? No. Digger Rhythm Devils got me right around... Uh, Bobby and the Midnight. Yeah. Right around the same time. Yeah, because we were opening for Jerry and them. A lot. You, um, you even went out of Jamaica? You, we went to Jamaica. Was a, that was an, uh, what an experience. What yeah, you said you experience. learned not to drink the punch. There you go. That, Did, was, that was after... That was on Saturday Night Live. Because uh, I, was, I was the drummer on Saturday Night Live. That's 79. Uh-huh. Or 78. Drummer on Saturday Night Live. And for that, for that season... And I was... I was just out of it, just on the contact high, man. It was off the hook. I mean, just sitting there, you couldn't see the Tamil logo on my bass drum. <laughs> Actually, it was the other way around. You could see the Tamil logo on my bass drum, but it had a cloud under it, as if it was floating above, above the sky. When they said, introducing the band, what you saw were the knees of the band, um... Because it was a cloud below the knees, and 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 then it was hazy. All it was like more hazy than wavy gravy. It was like unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, and it was just like what with Lou Ferrini and all. Everybody was like out of it, and yeah. um, and I I I for one couldn't stay because I physically just 
couldn't couldn't keep up. I'd like to point out you're very very sober guy yeah, and always have. Because I didn't do that kind of stuff, right? You know, and, and so I, talk about pure hit, bang, right? And I was like, Ugh. and then when they came on the road, came on the show, and they were doing the week at New York uh, Radio City Music Hall. That was one of the most amazing uh, experiences to, to to understand that for that whole week where they did two or three shows a day, okay, in Radio City Music Hall, 4,500 people a show, seven days, that's 21 shows. Three sets, acoustic, electric, Three electric. sets, man, right? They're changing the house, right? And the only thing that went wrong during that period with all the policemen that, that, that was managing, uh, I think it was a 10-block radius around that place. It could be less. They all had a, a deadhead button <laughs> on their caps, right? This is New York's finest. The only things that happened that was a wonderful thing, there were three babies born in the hall. Wow. There was no, zero no problems outside. Whatever those babies are today. Oh, baby. <laughs> Ira Gross, who is engineering this for me and with us, um, saw you sit in with them. Mm-hmm. So I think not just for, I mean, they always have the drum segment in the middle of the second set or at those shows, well, third that was, set. What was it? Zakir, Ayrton Moreira, Flora was somewhere floating around. You Hamza. Know. Yeah. Of course, you know, Kreutzmann, the usual suspects. I don't have a and, and I after that was over, me and Mickey Hart, Kreutzmann. I was living on Central Park West and eighty sixth Street. I still don't understand how I got home. <laughs> I was in the same car with those cats. All I know was that I was sitting on the curb at in front of my building, but I don't know how I got there. Did you get dosed ever? Huh? Well, they were known for, no, don't drink the punch. They were known for... I had no idea what I... I mean, I had something to drink, and I realized I wouldn't do that anymore. So you did, you might have had a psychedelic... I, did, I don't know if it was that, because it was painless, man. It was like, all of a sudden, you just were not in the same place that you were before you had it. Well, it's bear stuff, of course. Yeah. But I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you also played on one night on songs, not just during the drum cycle. Well, yeah, I just, I mean, I had that in a chocolate chip cookie. That's all I know. <laughs> That's all I know. But I want to ask you about not the drum segment because you're just going for it and you're used to it. That's very mm-hmm. much your setting. When you're playing with the Grateful Dead on songs, mm-hmm. a lot of musicians tell me that one of the keys in their music is that they play the melodic instruments often play behind the beat. They're pretty laid back. But that, that's an easy one to deal with. If you are in sync with yourself, you just play along with where the tempo is. You don't try to force it to where it's, you think it's supposed to be. You can play ahead of the tempo, you can play in the center of the beat, and you can play behind the beat. And for me, it's, it's, it's just about feeling. I had, I had no trouble playing with those guys. It was fine. So did you draw on that when you played in Jazz is Dead? Did you draw on that experience? And were you, were you talking um, to... I'm not, not consciously, no. It's just what I did anyway. You know, to me, it's, I'm just playing with fellow musicians, and this is, this is how we treat the music, and it's another day on, on the bandstand. You know, no problem. And um, then we got the Midnights, which the first album is, I think is really underrated. Mm-hmm. And you would get your big moment. Do you remember the Me Without You? 
I don't have a clue, man. That was your song. I made that mistake of having a little bit of punch when I shouldn't have. Oh, okay. So I don't know, but we got it done. That that's all I know. Well, I kind of heard the record after I'd done my parts because I used to get my parts done not not consciously quickly, but because of my experiences in the studio, Alfonso was there. Um, everything was cool, and we just do the tracks with Cochran, Cochran, right on the money, no problem. And then it was up to where to do whatever they wanted to do with it. But I wasn't going to hang around there. And so I could get my stuff done in a couple of days, two, three days, and then they take months doing whatever they did. You know? But but in the live setting, I, one of the great things about Weir and why he's one of my favorite musicians, seems like it might be frustrating for the musicians. Like he can be he can be a melodic player and a, and a rhythm section player mm-hmm. back and forth yeah. in, a light, in, a, in, a, in a minute. Mm-hmm. Was that a challenge or was that part no, of the No, not for me. He was, because he was playing on top of what I, I established. So that gave him the flexibility and, and, and freedom to expand on it.